Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 25th, 2017. We're going to ramble our way through Exodus today. And for those of you who've never heard a Lutheran talk about baptism, oh man, you, you're going to have to be sitting down, got to get the Bible open, you're going to need it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, yeah, the the written Word of God, to compare and see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. It's weird how that works. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being said doesn't actually jive with what God's Word teaches. Now, all of that being said, once a week we do what we call a light episode. It's not light. No, not light at all. It's uh, it's quite a heavy topic. And uh, many of the uh, teachings we've been offering up on Wednesdays have been the Sunday school classes that I've been teaching at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. And I will warn you right now, if you've never heard a Lutheran talk about baptism, you're going to sit there and your, your first reaction is going to be, uh that ain't right. Yeah, and uh, I get it. Yeah, I actually used to believe the evangelical doctrine of baptism. And what is the evangelical doctrine of baptism? Baptism is something you do to show the world that you've made a decision for Jesus. The problem is there is no text in the Bible that says that. And what the Bible actually says about baptism, yeah, it, <laughs> it's God's work. It ain't yours. And actually, it's not symbol. It's you know, God's doing stuff. And you're thinking, what, 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 what? Yeah, I know, I know. It's And it's the crazy part is, is that this is actually... <laughs> What Christians have believed from the beginning, um, it's not until the time of the Reformation where you start to see a deviation from what the Church has historically taught on baptism. Now, I know these are huge claims, so let me put it this way. The next two weeks, uh, this Wednesday and next Wednesday, you're going to hear the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. You're also going to hear 
about the Lord's Supper. And you're gonna it's it if you've never been exposed to the idea of the means of grace and God working through these things and that it not being symbol but that God's actually doing stuff, you're you this is gonna rock you. That's all I can say. And all I can say is this. Keep an open Bible. Now, with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, uh, as we get to the crossing of the Red Sea, what, what, you know, we're going to make the parallel between this and baptism. Um, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to put in the additional resources today, a PDF that I put together several years ago on what the clearest Bible passages teach regarding baptism, and commentary it's commentary how the earliest church earliest christians understood these texts now so here's the idea the texts actually say what they mean and they mean what they say and the the how the earliest christians understood these texts that's there so you can sit there and go well well augustine thought this Irenaeus thought this yeah and the council of nicaea thought that yeah so the idea here is is that um, the, you know, what has come about as a result of kind of like the Radical Reformation uh, is this denying that God's actually doing anything in baptism, which is actually what the Scripture says. Um, it, it, it's, it kind of like emptied it of God doing anything, and it's just, it, it's just an ordinance. It's something you're supposed to do. It's a hoop you're supposed to jump through. But the Bible doesn't talk about baptism in those ways, and I know if this is your first exposure to it, yeah, you, you you might get whiplash. That's all I got. I, you, you could seriously hurt yourself. So I'm going to uh, put a link to the document that I put together, as well as a link to a previous episode, actually two previous episodes of Fighting for the Faith, uh, regarding how Lutherans understand the biblical text in relation to baptism. One is a conversation that I had years ago with Daniel Emery Price, uh, who is a, a convert to uh, Lutheran doctrine, and uh, the other is uh, is uh, Basics of the Christian Faith class that we did several years ago, Pastor Ernie Lassman. And here's the idea. Listen, we could totally get this wrong. We, we may be way off on this. But the idea then is this. Show us from the biblical text. I'm going to put my cards out on the table and say, here's the text that talk about baptism Here's what the, God's Word says God is doing in baptism and what it's for and all that kind of stuff. And if, you know, hey, you know, I could totally be missing this. So the idea here is is that, um, yeah, in order to say, well, baptism really is a thing that we do to show the world we've made a decision for Jesus, I'd like to see those texts. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. So, uh, you know... Thinking, man, Roseburg, you're being kind of ornery. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I apologize for being ornery. But uh, so th- th- just think of it this way. This week and next week's Roseboro's Ramblings Through Exodus, if you've never heard of the means of grace and God working through the means of grace, this is going, yeah, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And all I can say, open Bible. I'm giving you more information so that you can do the cross-referencing and checking. And, and, and the idea is this, is that Lutherans actually have a pretty simple way of approaching these things. Are you ready? Yeah, the, God's Word means what it says and says what it means regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> really underwhelming. <laughs> simple. Yeah, it's, just, it's not simple. It's just actually God's Word says what it means. It means what it says regarding these two things. But the thing is, is that when you believe that what God's Word says, 
that it means what it says regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper, all of a sudden they go from being law to being gospel, and they provide comfort and assurance and certainty like you wouldn't believe. It's absolutely amazing. And I know, you know, for those of you who, you know, this is your first exposure to this, you're already crossing your arms and your, your eyes are like screwed up and, you know, you, you're kind of looking at me through the, you know, your eyebrows. I get the laser beam thing. Listen, I've been there, done that. I used to be where you are. No problem. Oh, I get it. So listen, don't give me the benefit of the doubt. Re- listen with an open Bible and uh, let's get into this week's ramblings through the book of Exodus as we get into the crossing of the Red Sea. Here we go. Okay, let's pray and then we will get into it. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 if you want to get there in your Bible. Lord Jesus, again, as we open your word and we study the Exodus, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to find Christ in these pages and see your mighty hand to save your people and then understand that this story does not exclude us but that we are intimately wrapped up in it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we last left off, the children of Israel were just finishing up with the Passover. Last time in the book of Exodus. (laughs) Previously. (laughs) Previously in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel had, uh, had celebrated the Passover The final plague has come, and the final plague hearkens to the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain, Scripture says. And now we're going to take a close look at Exodus chapter 14. Since we do not have visual aids, we will not be cavorting with Google Earth. I'll have to show you next week. We'll, We'll engage in the hermeneutical spiral and we'll come back through. But there's a very important motif in Scripture. And in the Advent season, during one of the midweek services, I teased out this motif just a little bit. But I want to spend some time today unpacking the motif a little bit. And when we look at the parting of the Red Sea, there is a governing passage in the New Testament that helps us get that this is type and shadow pointing to a reality so Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea is a form of baptism. We'll talk about that um, in more depth next week. But the motif I really want to drill in hard on is this motif that we see in Scripture where the high and exalted, and you have to almost say the, the self-exalted, they are brought to nothing. And it's the great flipping of the tables. And so we'll see it in the actions of the parting of the Red Sea, but we're going to hear the theology of the parting of the Red Sea in part because there's other passages of Scripture that help us understand the different facets of the theology of the event. But in Exodus 15, we see what is called the Song of Moses. And the Song of Moses has a New Testament parallel, and it's in a place where a lot of people would not expect it. At least the theme is the same. You find it in what's called the Magnificat. When it is announced, when John the Baptist basically proclaims that um, the baby in Mary's womb is the Messiah and Elizabeth prophesies and then you have Mary say the words of the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The themes in the Magnificat 
follow the same themes that we see in the Song of Moses. And this is great motif of those who are oppressed, who are under the thumb of evil, who are poor, exploited, and made to suffer. All of a sudden, they are shouting for joy. They are released from bondage and their oppressors, the high and self-exalted, are brought to absolute nothing. And this is a picture of our salvation. And it's important for us to get something here. When we talk about salvation and who it is that truly is our enemy, scriptures over and again make it clear that we battle not against flesh and blood. So there isn't, and I mean this, not, there isn't a single person on this planet who is truly our enemy. They may not like us and have become our enemies, but we are not theirs. And so when we talk about this motif, when we see the stand-in for the devil, which is Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, you have to see them for what they are. This is not somehow teaching us how to oppose somebody we don't like or somebody who is opposed to Christianity. This is not what this is at all. This is, a, this is cosmic. This is cataclysmic. This is quantum stuff going on here. Pharaoh is a type and shadow pointing to the devil, his army pointing to the demon horde. And this is a picture of God's victory over the devil, not our victory over your, your least favorite political party here in the United States. It's important that we not misapply these, these uh, motifs so that we, uh, we kind of miss the point. Now, it is true that those who persist in opposing God are siding with the devil, and God literally describes of them that oftentimes their schemes and the things that they hope for will come to ruin in a day. And that's, that's always true because everyone always dies. It's always funny that somebody's big grand vision for the world always has a way of dying with them, does it not? Yeah, so let's keep that in mind. The reason for that is simple, because there's how many, seven billion little deities running around on planet Earth right now? You know, and, uh, and so when one, one of those little deities rises up and has some grand vision for the world, another one will always come up and they have a slightly different vision, so... You know, what right now our big, you know, kind of threat that is kind of lurking on the horizon is North Korea. And uh, boy, that fellow is, uh, yeah, yeah, Kim Jong ill or yeah, ill repute or something. Yeah. Is Un, Un, Kim Jong Un, yeah. My Korean, I know none of it. So I know, I know kimchi, and that's about it. But, um, you know, that guy, that guy is really quite an interesting piece of work. He's got a little God complex. And so he's, um, his, his, all of his plans will come to naught in a day, and that will be the day that he dies. And so, you know, and don't worry, there'll be some other tin penny despot who will rise up who will want to take on the U.S. It always seems to happen. It's just the way the world works. So, but this has nothing that we're going to study, has nothing to do with that. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. 
You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Now, a little bit of a note here. Uh, if you were here last time, we opened up Google Earth and we showed where all this is taking place. This is taking place at the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, there's uh, literally a little beachhead that comes out that's formed by a wadi. And this is where they're camped and they're going to cross the Red Sea at this point. And historically, this is how Israel has recognized this to be the actual place where it took place. Now, what I'll do next week is I'll bring a couple of links for you. Well, a link to a YouTube, a documentary that has been, that has been published on YouTube that explains the archaeological evidence for uh, where the crossing took place and where Mount Sinai is. Uh, it's good to see this. And back in either the late 90s or early 2000s, there was actually an archaeological uh, dive on this, in, you know, in the Gulf of Aqaba in this region. And they have footage, and it's wonderful footage, footage of, um, of coral formations that literally look like the coral has grown into the wreckage of Egyptian chariots. And the reason for it is simple. This is actual history. This is not some mythology. This is not a legend. This is not something that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is not in the foggy mists of mystical time. This was at a time and a place. It's important to also note this, and that is, is that there is a group, a pretty prominent group of Egyptologists and modern-day archaeologists who literally say there is not one shred of evidence for the Exodus as, as told in the Bible. And the way they do their archaeology is like this. They cover their eyes and they go, nope, I don't see any evidence for the Exodus at all. And a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, there was a documentary that was released in the, in the theaters, and it's now on Netflix. Those of you who like binge-watching Netflix, there's nothing to binge on on this one. It's a one-episode thing. The name of the documentary is Patterns of Evidence Exodus. Patterns of Evidence Exodus. And it is amazing. It's my kind of nerdy thing. But anyway... This is a great documentary, and it goes through and explains what is the reason why these particular Egyptologists and archaeologists in the Middle East don't see any evidence. And it has to do with the fact that they have a false timeline regarding how the history of Egypt unfolds. But if you lose their false timeline and you look for the evidence as you would expect to see it in, uh, you know, from what the Bible tells Oh my word. <laughs> it, we know where Goshen is. They have, no joke, I'm not making this. They have found the original tomb of Joseph. They have found the original tomb of Joseph. And I have to say that because remember, Joseph's bones are moved. They even found the original tombs of the 12 patriarchs, the sons of, of you know, the 11, the 11 remaining. I am not making this up. And, the, and they even have documents from the time period, an eyewitness account from an Egypt, the Egyptian point of view, of the plagues themselves. And on top of it, we even have, this might seem like it's not a big deal, but it really is. We have a, an Egyptian document 
giving a list of names of slaves at the time, and they're all Hebrew names. They're all Hebrew names. In fact, even one of the, uh, one of the names, I think, is Shipra, which is one of the names of the Hebrew midwives given in, in the Bible. And so when you look at the, the, the evidence that we actually do have, it's overwhelming. Great documentary, worth the watch. Does anyone here not have Netflix? Oh, okay, I'll pray for you. Patterns of evidence. Patterns of evidence. Exodus. Yeah. Yeah. Is that supposed to be in the Red Sea? It is. It is in the Red so, Sea. When they crossed, what was that stuff that just maybe broke down, or do you think everything would have crossed with it? Well, here's the thing. We're going to read in just a second. And so up, up to this point, you know, the Egyptians, they've let them go. Now the children of Israel are about to cross the Red Sea. It's a miraculous crossing. And it, it, literally, this is the hand of God that's, that's involved in this. And what ends up happening is, is that the armies of Pharaoh are going to pursue the children of Israel into the Red Sea while the water is parted. They make it to the other side, and the water collapses in. Yeah, so the wreckage of Egyptian chariots should be expected in the bottom of the Red Sea. Yeah. Remember the children of Israel, they got no chariots. Yep. So let's continue then. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people of had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us. It's like, who's going who's gonna to do my laundry? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. I love how it describes their going out defiantly. You know, you know, it just makes you wonder, were there hand gestures involved? Were they singing songs? How did this go exactly? Because I can think of ways that I do things defiantly. You know. So they're going out defiantly. Yes? Mm-hmm. Do we have a number of the people who fled? Because 600, that's a lot. So do we have a number that we're following? We're going to get to that in a little bit. It's, okay, not in this chapter, but in the coming chapters, there's going to be a little bit of a census taken, which will give us the, a rough estimate of how many people we're dealing with. It's well over a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chariots at the time, by the way, were like the uh, ancient world's equivalent of a tank. And against unarmed, yeah, against unarmed civilians, they're devastating. Okay. So the Egyptian pursued them all, uh, pursued them all. Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen, and his army overtook them and camped at the sea at Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. I'll show you this next week when we get our television back. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
and the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Now this is just amazing trash talk here. Um, This reminds me of the type of conversations I had with my children when they were small and were traveling on long driving trips. Here's how this one goes. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Mother, do you not care that I'm going to die because I haven't had lunch yet? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. No, that's not what you said. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Oh, man. Now, if you are thinking in terms of like what's possible in the, in just in the natural world, okay, unarmed people who've just been freed from slavery, who've never been trained for war, who don't have any swords, chariots, or anything at all, as far as army-wise, you think about it, there's no way they can defeat the Egyptians. None whatsoever. But see, they seem to forget something here, and it is God who has set them free. And God has not brought them out of Egypt with these ten plagues that we just saw that literally utterly destroy the whole economy of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. It took them centuries to recover from this, by the way. Centuries. And, you know, God's not about to just leave them to die. So these statements show lack of faith. Lack of faith in God. Lack of trust in His Word. Lack of faith in God's goodness towards them. They can... They, as far as this goes, there's no way to defeat the Egyptians. It would take a miracle. Hmm. I seem to think God specializes in such things. It would take a miracle. And no, we will not be visiting Miracle Max. So Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Wow. Who's going to, do, who's going to win this one? Yeah, those are some pretty strong words. Now keep in mind, what we're going to see happening here is a picture of salvation itself. Egypt's armies and Pharaoh are a stand-in for the devil. And against him who has us in slavery and oppression under His dominion, the dominion of darkness, there is nothing we can do to free ourselves. Nothing we can do to fight against His horde. God is the one who has got to work this salvation for us. So the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now they're on a beach, and in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is the armies of Egypt. What do you mean, go forward? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do so well in geography class, but I'm pretty sure this is not going to work. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. I want you to see this again. Pay attention to the physical act here. He's got a piece of wood in his hand. He's going to go up to the sea and divide it. What does he look like? 
It looks like the cross. Uh huh. Right. He's not only going to do this once, there's another story coming where he's going to do that exact same thing again. And you're sitting there going, whoa, wait a second. Are you saying, Pastor Rosebro, that Moses is kind of a stand-in for Jesus in this story? Uh-huh. And there's the wood of the cross. And if, you're not, if you can't see the connection, just see him doing this. And the miracle takes place. The sign of the cross shows up all over the, wander, the wanderings of Israel in the, in the wilderness. It's amazing when you start to see how many times it shows up. And here it is. Now there's another story where they're fighting you know, some tribe that's you know, come to attack them. And as long as Moses' arms are out, they're winning. And as soon as they droop, they lose. So what was the solution? <sighs> Hold your arms out. Right? right. So the whole time they're winning, there's Moses at the edge of a cliff with guys holding his arms up so he looks like he's being crucified. This is all on purpose. The typology is amazing. So there's Moses with a piece of wood symbolizing the cross, making the sign of the cross with his body, and then the sea parts. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings on Exodus as we look at the implications regarding the crossing of the Red Sea and its type and shadow fulfillment in the waters of baptism. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Presents Church Day Select. morning new song church as you know we are here to worship our wonderful and almighty God because our God is bigger than you can imagine and is capable of more than you can imagine let's give it up for God isn't it so great that our God can do anything 
virgins can't give birth. Oh, you're absolutely right. I almost forgot. God most certainly cannot have virgins give birth. But he is certainly almighty. Well, he can't be bodily present in the Lord's Supper either. Yep. I can't believe I almost missed that one. He cannot be bodily present in the Lord's Supper, but he is definitely all-powerful. Yo, Pastor Preacher! Remember, God can't violate our free will neither. That is 100% correct. I am so glad that all y'all are so well-versed in your Bibles. We all know that God can't help us unless we ask him to help us. Well, he can't give infants faith through baptism either. Well, that goes without saying. Isn't it great how omnipotent our God is? It's impossible for God to have created the universe in six 24-hour days. Yes, Siri. That don't make a lick of sense no how. People who believe that are just crazy. Hey. People can't rise from the dead, either. That's correct, Mundo. Could you imagine how screwed up our tax system would be if people were rising from the dead all up in here? It'd be ridiculous. But don't forget that our God can do anything. Wait a minute, doesn't Paul say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead that our faith would be in vain? Well, we all know how you can't take scripture literally. Well, how does that work? Does that mean that the Bible can't be trusted? All right, everyone. That right there is what we call a hater. We all know what to do with those types of people. We throw them under the bus. Ushers, take him away. Hey, hey, let me go. Let me. Ah, ah, get your hands off me. I, I will have you arrested. I can die. Let's hear for the Almighty God. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com 
forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the fate today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the means of grace is an actual, true, biblical doctrine. Because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can partner with us by sending your contribution to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, or you can just click on the Donate button there at our website. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's ramblings through Exodus as we look at the type and shadow of the crossing of the Red Sea and the fulfillment of the waters of baptism. Here we go. (laughs) Okay. So, why do you cry out? Tell the people, go lift up your staff, stretch your hand out over the sea, divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And literally, it's like a bottleneck right there. There's no way for the Egyptians to get around the pillar of fire. There was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now, you've got to think about this for a second. The Egyptians have just lost, and I mean every family has just lost all of their firstborn. They just experienced nine other plagues on top of that. Blood, frog, gnats, darkness, hail that came down like fire. You know, work, work this all out. And there they are... And they can't get to the children of Israel that are on the beach just beyond that pillar of cloud. And that pillar of cloud literally came and moved and stood right between them. I've seen weather before. I've never seen weather like this. What on earth has possessed them that they do not see this for what it is? Literally, I, if, as soon as it got dark, if I were the, in the Egyptian army, I'm thinking, how do I get out of here? We're all going to die. We don't stand a chance. But God has hardened their hearts 
so that they do the most amazingly stupid thing ever. So the Egyptians, okay. So then Moses stretched out his hand. All right. Verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, now it finally comes, now they finally connect the dots. Let us flee from before Israel for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. They're already in the middle of this. I've never seen water on a, as a wall on either side. There they are in the midst of this, and they only now are figuring this out. So then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Now, let me give you a governing text here that helps us to understand this in light of the New Testament. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll come back to this one next week, but I want to get this in your mind so that you can see there's a direct connection between what we just read and something that has happened for all of us. He says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now you notice, the first four verses talk about the events of the Exodus. And we're going to see this literally in the the chapters that come. 14, 15, 16, and 17. We're going to see this baptism that takes place in the Red Sea. That's what that was. That was a baptism. It's a picture of our baptism. We're going to see them being fed miraculous food from heaven, bread from heaven. We're going to hear about them drinking from a rock, and Paul just said, that rock is Jesus. So we can see then, this passage helps us understand what's going on in the Exodus has everything to do with what's going on in the New Testament, because again, that's type and shadow. The reality then is found in the New Testament. So if the parting of the Red Sea is a baptism, oh, and it is, it's a picture of what God does for you in your baptism. 
Years ago, I taught junior high and high school kids at an LCMS church in, uh, in Indiana. And when we worked through this text, when we got to the part where it says that, that they saw the Egyptians lying dead on the seashore, I took all the kids and I said, let's go to the baptismal font. And this is a church where when you walk into the sanctuary, you've know, you got these two huge doors going into the sanctuary. The first thing you see when you come in is a baptismal font. It's right there. You'd trip on it if you, if you didn't know it was there. And they, they always have water in it. They've got a little pump to keep it so the water stays clear. But I had them all gather around the baptismal font. And I said to the kids, I said, I want you to look, up, look at the rim of the baptismal font. What do you see? And they were looking at me like I had lost it. I'm like, look, look, what do you see? Mr. Roseboro, we don't see anything. Look closer. You see it? No. <laughs> I said, look a, little, look a little closer. You see the dead demons lying on the rim of the baptismal font. When you were baptized... You were buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Your heart was circumcised by Christ. Your sins are washed away. You were united with Him in His death and His resurrection. And this crossing of the Red Sea is the cosmic picture of God setting you free from the dominion of darkness by destroying the power of the devil and his demons. You are brought through the waters of baptism and you are no longer a slave and the devil has no power over you whatsoever and there are the demons lying dead at the baptismal font. It's a picture of our baptism. It's a powerful picture. One that we, are, we ought to be embracing. Because you'll notice the theology is very clear. Who did the saving that day? God did. How many Egyptians died at, by sword that was wrought by one of the children of Israel? Not one. This total victory, utter annihilation and destruction was wrought not by a single human being, but was wrought completely by God. Same is true about your salvation. What you cannot do, could not do, Christ has done for you. So that's the picture going on here. Now, chapter 15 gives us... Yes? While we're on plots, can you explain why historically most baptismal plots have eight sides? Oh, sure, absolutely. This, that's a great question, and you're right. You're absolutely right. Your question asked, that, that you asked is, why do baptismal fonts historically have eight sides? Okay? And this is true. If you do archaeology, you find old, 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 old churches you'll find baptismal fonts, and they had different types where you can stand in them or whatever, but rarely was baptism ever done by total immersion. Instead, they had baptismal fonts, and they were always octagonal. And the reason's simple. When was circumcision eighth, on the eighth day? Eighth day is the first day of the new creation, and the eighth day, right, you know, you know, we're united with Christ, our sins are forgiven, and baptism is the reality that circumcision always pointed to. Circumcision is the type and shadow. Baptism is the reality. So the reason why baptismal fonts always were eight-sided is, is literally because it's symbolic of that eighth-day new creation stuff and a recognition that circumcision has now given way to baptism. And it's not just boys that are, are uh, baptized. It's uh, boys and girls now. 
In fact, there was a little bit of a fight pretty early on in church history as to whether or not they should wait until the eighth day to baptize children because of the circumcision thing. And um, the, you know, it took a little bit of that for that fight to kind of work itself out, but it basically said, no, we don't have to wait till the eighth day. So, and so you'll see it in very early in the uh, early church's baptismal liturgy. Naming oftentimes was concurrent with baptism. Some of the older hymnals within, uh, the, within Lutheran churches still have that old um, baptismal liturgy where at the time of the baptism, the question is asked of the parents, what is this child to be named? Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, um, and that's, and so naming goes along with baptism. And so when people would say, what is your Christian name? It assumed that you were named when you were baptized. Now, we did this with faith, and that was fun. You know, <laughs> we were attending a church where they still had that older uh, baptismal liturgy. And so Barb and I made the decision we weren't going to let anybody know what faith was named until her baptism. So she was born on a Friday. Yeah, she was born on a Friday. And Barbara, believe it or not, was ready to go to church on Sunday. I mean, everyone marveled at that miracle. But, but we told you know, my mother, oh my goodness, what, what's this baby named? Come to church if you want to find out. <laughs> told her if she wanted to know what the baby's name did. So she was just baby Rosebro for a couple of days, right? And so, and this was the first baptism at this church where they had done that. I heard that since then several people had you know, did the same thing. But um, so the pastor doesn't even know the name. The name's not in the bulletin. And so we get to the part of the baptismal liturgy where it's like, and what is this child to be named? The pastor asks. And I got to speak faith's name for the very first time. Her name is Faith Marie Rosebro. And I swear, everyone was like straining to hear, you know. <laughs> and, the, and, and the pastor, you know, the pastor, he actually had to like quickly like say it again in his mind so that he, you know, when he said, Faith Marie Roseboro in the name, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, that he didn't drop the ball there because he, he had just heard it for the first time too. And so, you know, it, it was really a cool thing. But, and by the way, legally, that's not a big deal um, in some cultures, uh, Nigerian culture and Chinese culture and things like that. Um, children will not be named immediately. You have to get input from family members and stuff like that. And it could take, take a little bit of time. So when we told the people at the hospital, you know, she's not going to be named until her baptism, they gave us some form to fill out. They, they already had a procedure. It was pretty straightforward. We just sent it in afterwards. So... Well, not a social security card before you leave the hospital, but that came, they, they did do all that work for us after we gave her a name. So, all right. I have just a quick question. Yes, sir. Do Lutherans believe, um, like, if a child dies before they're baptized, uh-huh. that, you know, they're not going to heaven or they're not saved? Or? First and foremost, okay, this is a great question. The question is, do Lutherans believe that if a child isn't baptized, that they're not saved? We do not believe that, that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. And so the idea then is, is that um, as a pastor, when you are speaking with and consoling parents who've lost a child, maybe they've had a miscarriage or the child has died prior to baptism, 
what we do is we, we first and foremost look at the passage that says that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should be brought to repentance and faith in Christ. This is God's expressed will. But so then we look for the means of grace. And so the idea is that I've actually had the opportunity to comfort somebody who's lost a child in, you know, under these circumstances. And where we go to is, the, is we go to this. We know that God works through means. And so baptism is one of the means by which God works repentance and faith in a human being. But what is baptism? According to Ephesians 5, baptism is, the, is water and the word. So that's what baptism is. Water and the word. Well, it's the word that's doing the work, not the water. So now we're going we're to fall back. And we all know from science and recent studies have shown that children in utero, they hear our voices, they are, become familiar with who their mother is, they can recognize their dad's voice if dad is around a lot. Um, they can hear music and, and all these kinds of stuff. You ever see you know, pictures of mommies with like headphones on their, on their, on their pregnant bellies? Those are always very cute. But, um, but the idea, we know this about these human beings. And so our fallback position is we're going to tell those parents, listen, you've been coming to church. Your unborn child has heard the gospel. Your unborn child has heard of the death and resurrection of Christ and has heard the word of God. And because of that, we're going to trust that word to have done its work because God cares intimately about the children of his believers. Now, with an unbeliever who doesn't, you know, who doesn't come to church, who despises God's word, the only thing we can do at this point is we can say, listen, I'm not the judge we can trust the, the maker of the universe. I don't think you do anybody any good when you step into God's shoes and you say, I know for certain your child just went to hell. And I would say, I know for certain you're an awful pastor. Get out of the pulpit and get away because you're not leading people to Christ. All right, That's law. And so um, the best way I can put it, when we read Scripture over and again, one of the recurring themes that we see is that God is ridiculously patient and kind and long-suffering even against those who oppose him because it's not his will that they should perish so much so that that god's patience and loving kindness even towards his enemies oftentimes exacerbates his saints who feel that there's no justice in the world because of just how patient and long-suffering god is this is kind of the whole subtext of, of the story of Jonah. When we think of the story of Jonah, all we think about is the fact that there's a big fish involved. Well, there's a bigger story than the bigger fish. And the story is this, is that the reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because those Ninevites, they make the Nazis look like schoolgirls. These are war criminals, cruel people who impaled their victims and let them suffer and languish and die in the most horrible ways. When they would conquer a city, they would cut off all the heads of all of the soldiers and the officers and stack them up like cords of wood. And so when Jonah gets the call to go and preach repentance, to tell that God's going to judge Nineveh, why does he head the opposite direction? Well, it says later in the text, later in the book, the reason why is because Jonah says, I knew you, God, to be you know, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving. And he was upset. The reason he was upset is because they repented and they were forgiven. He wanted them all to burn in hell. So over and again, the scriptures reveal 
that God does not desire our destruction. He desires to be merciful and kind to us. And so today is the day of salvation. Today being the day of salvation, I seriously doubt the God who has taken it upon Himself to go so far as to be incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, and raised from the grave. I have a hard time believing that that God who went so far to save us is going to take an infant who never got baptized and send them to hell because of that. And that's not the God that's revealed in Scripture. Do you think Hitler was baptized? Um, do I think... Okay, now this, is, now this is important. This, you've got to understand something. Lutherans believe that it is possible for somebody's faith to be lost. We do not believe in the doctrine that is called once saved, always saved. Let me give you a text on it so that you can see it. And so Hitler, although he, I think he may have been christened, he, there's no sign that he had faith. None whatsoever. Okay? Yeah, and have any of you guys... It's the same. It's, it, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's synonyms here. But let me give you a text so you kind of get it. Galatians chapter 5. Um, Paul writes in Galatians 5, I'll start at verse 1 for our context. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So he's talking to people who are Christians, who are baptized, who are being tempted into theological apostasy by the heresies of the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are saying, you are not saved by grace through faith alone. You must keep the Mosaic law or you're not saved. That's what they're saying. And your cross-reference is Acts 15 here. Paul then says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole Torah. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So this is one of, of, of a handful of passages that speak in this way. And so the idea here is, is that faith is a gift given by God. And the person who persists in despising God's Word, hearing God's Word, believing God's Word, and now the object of their faith is no longer Christ, but their own good works or some false doctrine in the, uh, theology, they've shipwrecked their faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, and that, that becomes, you know, see, the reason why, you know, baptism is a, is a thorny subject for some is that every one of us can look at somebody that we all know was baptized, and that person is living like hell. Yeah. We all know that. We all know that person. And if some of us are honest, some of us can say, yeah, that person was me for a while. And so we, we look at these things and we sit there and go, how do we reconcile that with the, with the evangelical doctrine, once saved, always saved? We, the scripture doesn't teach this. Once saved, always saved is a human doctrine, and it's a very dangerous one. It's a very dangerous doctrine. It basically teaches you that you can become a Christian and then take the grace of God and turn it into a license for all kinds of sin and vice. No way. Because that's human nature. Yep. 
Yeah, it's, it basically says, all right, so let me see if I got this straight. God likes to forgive sins, right? Man, I like to, I like to commit them. Yeah, I like to sin. So it's like, me and God, we should get together, man. Yeah, you know, that Jesus, man, he makes it so I can just go out and form a caboodle all I want, no big deal, just, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you, know, if you don't know what that word means, just, it, yeah. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah, forno caboodle. I don't think you can Google it, but yeah, by no means. That's what should. And, by, and let me do this. Are you ready? Okay. Should we sin so that grace may abound? No. You want to know the Bible's answer to this? Watch what it's connected to. It's Romans six. Romans six. Should we sin so that grace may abound? Paul, verse two, Romans six. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That kind of begs the question. When did you die to sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You think baptism is a big deal? Paul seems to think it is. Is baptism a license to sin? No, it's the reason why you don't turn the grace of God into a license to sin because you died with Christ. And that's his whole argument. In fact, let's, let's just end up on this top. Let's, read, let's finish Romans 6 in the beginning part of 7 and you'll see it. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Have you been united with Christ, yes or no? Where? Baptism, right. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, the slavery thing, the motif here. Israel is set free from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Hmm. We are set free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil in the waters of the Red Sea. Hmm. That's what's going on. We know that our old self was crucified with him. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Have you died or not? You have. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all, the life He lives, He lives for God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Why must you do that? Is it because it's a farce? Is it because it's a fantasy or a hope? Or is it because that's the reality? You are dead to sin and you are alive to God in Christ because you are baptized. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? (laughs) It's like, no! (laughs) It's like, Sin equals slavery. Okay, When we get later in the Exodus, you're going to see the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness and going, Oh man, I miss slavery. Slavery was the best thing ever. There was food everywhere. There were pots full of meat. And I, all we get out here is this manna. I can't stand manna. And, <laughs> and so they say, Let's go back to Egypt. The person who says, I want to sin, is saying, I want to go back to slavery under the devil. No, thank you. That guy's crazy. Totally nuts. All right, so do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. When were we set free from slavery to sin? In our baptism. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. It's funny how that sin has a way of growing. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. We all understand this, right? How many of you have ever been scandalized by the fact that such and such a widow out there found another guy and they got married and are living happily ever after? None of you are scandalized by such a thing. You sit there and go, that's great. That's a great story. I'm so glad she's happy. But if her husband was still alive and she was running around with a bunch of guys and then decided to shack up with one of them and eventually became, you know, got married to him, we have words for that woman. Because we all know she's an adulteress. She's a hoe. Maybe that's a little too earthy. And if the guy does it too. Of course, yes. Right. You know. And for the guy doing the same thing, you know, he's a man hoe. Okay? We know this. But the guy who's widowed, the woman who's widowed, 
It's till death do us part. Once the death thing takes place, there is no sin in remarrying. And this then is the parallel that informs our mind. Verse verse 4. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You'll notice here, Paul is not talking symbolically. He isn't saying, well, you've been symbolically set free. This is all symbol. He's talking as if, for real, you were in bondage in slavery, in captivity. And now you've been set free. And the opening portion of 6 explains where this takes place. In the Red Sea. In the waters of your baptism. Buried with Christ. Raised with Christ. Sins washed away. Hearts circumcised. All of these things that God's Word says about this. And it's not a symbol. It's a reality. And if you don't see it as a reality, then you never use your baptism as a weapon against the devil. So the devil comes to your door and says, hey, you want to come out and play? I've got some really cool sin for you today. You say to the devil, get lost. I'm not your slave anymore. I don't have to obey you. I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm baptized. When you understand what Scripture says, then you sit there and go, man, that baptism thing isn't small. It's huge. It's as big as the destruction of the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. Right. You see, those of us who've been baptized, we know with certainty we are not slaves to the devil and to sin. We have been set free. And because of that, when the devil comes along and tempts us, we go, we go out defiantly. So, yeah, that's, that's my, anyway, you get the point. All right, we'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? I know this is a, a tough topic. Yeah, that's right, especially if you believe, oh, it's a symbol, 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 symbol. Yeah, that's not what the texts say. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>